Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Toho Yaro, a Japanese film club podcast. I'm your host this month, Scott Dryman, and joining me as always are Joey Weiser. Hey, everybody. And Alex Kazanis. Hey, hey, hey. Uh, this month, we're talking about Yasujiro Ozu's An Autumn Afternoon. Uh, this movie, An Autumn Afternoon, was released in 1962 under the uh, the original Japanese title is Sanma no Aji, which the title was uh, created before the script was even written. Hmm. And uh, Ozu and his uh, screenwriter wanted to have a movie that would invoke the, the feeling of autumn because Sanma, the a specific kind of uh, mackerel, is a common fish in, in the autumn season, they wanted to evoke the feeling of autumn without actually sh- showing anybody uh, specifically eating sama. Oh, that's interesting. Um, so I was, uh, just to go into our history with the film or the director, our, the only other exposure I've had to Ozu's work is uh, Tokyo Story, which I watched a while ago. I intended to rewatch it before this, but did not get the chance. And uh, my impression of Ozu was that he was a very kind of traditionalist and uh, maybe a little stodgy. And I knew that all of his movies were about the dissolution of the Japanese family. Hmm. Well, that but, that uh, that definitely reads in this movie. Yeah, yeah. But I I guess I didn't have a, a good enough eye for watching film when I first saw Tokyo Story. And did not realize that he is he is traditional and is very kind of obsessed with the Japanese family and how it falls apart. But uh, his filmmaking style is was very surprising to me, and we'll go into that yeah. more in a little bit. Uh, <clears throat> did y'all have any other exposure to Ozu um, aside from Tokyo I Story? I had seen Tokyo Story earlier this year, and before that, I only know knew Ozu by reputation. Um, and I, you know, I kind of hate to admit it, but when I saw Tokyo story, I, uh, I didn't, I was kind of underwhelmed by it. Um, like I could, I could recognize the positive aspects of it, but, um, didn't really grab me, but you know, I'd been hearing about Ozu for years and years and knew he's one of these highly regarded, you know, classic Japanese filmmakers. So I've been curious to see more. There were a few of his films on his rate on my radar, like good morning, that I thought I might like based on some of the stuff I've seen about it. But like, so I was definitely like eager to, to uh, watch it, watch another one of his films um, since you were bringing it to us. But like, I was a little trepidatious. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Alex. Yeah. I've never seen a single one of his movies. Um, uh, I think the closest I've ever come is I've heard of Tokyo story. So this was uh, (laughs) a, I guess, um, yeah, I guess it's fitting that the last movie that he made is the first one that I saw. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like I was saying, my my impression, having watched Tokyo Story, I was like, this movie is very boring and very depressing. And, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and this movie, in, in ways, is also kind of boring and also kind of depressing, but there's so much more going on both to those aspects and mm-hmm. and that that make that very interesting. 
Yeah, uh, it's um, it's it's a somewhat cheerful movie despite uh, the looming uh, you know, depression that it kind of exudes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess I'll go ahead and just say that I liked this one uh, better than Tokyo Story for sure. Um, so yeah, we, <laughs> we can get into critiques afterwards, but yeah. um, it I yeah I, I did like this one. Uh, so to get a little more into Ozu, he was born in 1902 and uh, died in 1962, a little while after this movie released on his 60th birthday. Uh, he's an interesting figure. He uh, was a prolific drinker, never married, uh, lived his entire life with only his mother, uh, mm-hmm. which is interesting given his that almost all of his films deal with the Japanese family, that he was not himself really a family man in the yeah. same mold as all of his characters. Uh, he is incredibly prolific. I don't have a number of, of films that uh, he worked on, but he uh, he started working in film in the early 1920s and then started making his own films in the late 20s during the silent film era and had a huge amount of output pre-war in the 20s and 30s. And even then, he was, a lot of his uh, trademark style and also subject matter were, were already in play. Um, so a lot of, of themes of like the Japanese family the encroaching kind of uh, Western influences and, and influences of technology creeping mm-hmm. in, a lot of obsession of like chasing that that growing wealth and cha- uh, like Ohio is uh, Good Morning is based is a remake of one of his previous silent films with basically the same plot of children wanting their parents to buy them a television. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah, I will just go ahead and say that the thing that made me curious about that was I saw a video of one <laughs> of the special features that's just a bunch of like, it's like from the Criterion disc. So it's, of course, these like Criterion, you know, highbrow dudes talking about the use of farting in the movie mm-hmm. and these like farting sound effects. And I was just like, OK, this this is maybe something I can get down with. <laughs> yeah, it's it's apparent. It seems really. I would like to watch that as well. It seems lighthearted, and yeah, there's mm-hmm. like a ten minute long supercut of all the fart jokes in that movie. <laughs> um, but yeah, he he started working in silent film and being kind of set in his ways and slow to change stylistically. He was making silent films long after the rest of his contemporaries had stopped making silent films. Uh, he eventually switched to talkies, obviously, and once he started making films with sound, he held on to shooting in black and white for longer than the rest of his contemporaries, and then eventually started making films in color, and throughout his entire career, never changed beyond the 50 millimeter camera, just because mm-hmm. it was how he felt films should look. Um, the cinematographer on this is a gentleman named Yuharu Atsuta, who worked with uh, Ozu for his entire career. One of uh, the most, one of the most immediate signs that you're watching an Ozu film is that so many of the shots are from floor level. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, he had to do this. He actually had uh, special rigs for cameras, created tripods that would get that very low, low to the floor angle. And then, short risers that would actually make it a little taller for the close-up shots so they didn't have to pan up and do strange angles. 
Um, but uh, Usta in an interview was talking about the process of actually t- getting these shots and complained that he would he would set up the scene. Uh, he would be so low to the ground in most shots that he carried a mat around with him that he would have to lay on to look through the viewfinder. And he would get the shot where he wanted it, uh, lock down the camera, and then Ozu, who was incredibly particular about the framing of every single scene, um, would demand to look through the viewfinder, and which usually directors will will trust their cinematographers to, to get the shot that they're looking for. But Ozu was very particular about always checking himself, uh, occasionally making like very small micro adjustments to, to direction or angle and adjusting uh, props. And then they would lock the camera and everybody on set was terrified to bump the camera for fear of losing the shot and making Ozu angry. <laughs> um. Uh, an inter- interesting aspect of Ozu is that he is uh, was recognized late compared to a lot of the other uh, uh, great Japanese directors in the West. Uh, Ozu died in 1962, but it wasn't until the the mid to late 70s that he started gaining cultural cachet among film critics and and enthusiasts in the West. And uh, even today, something that is is interesting and a little frustrating to me about a lot of his work is there is uh, something you don't see as much in Kurosawa's work is a a string of kind of Orientalism in analyzing his work. Yeah. Uh, the they a lot of people I see this a lot and I've repeated it some I think maybe on this podcast that the the low angle view from his camera is intended to evoke sitting on a tatami mat, which it's not, it is, you would have to be laying on the tatami mat to get the same view as the camera (laughs) or a lot of, uh, uh, suggestions that the, the style and balance in his films is, is, uh, influenced by Zen Buddhism, which Mm. I have, I was unable to find anything directly from Ozu in interviews, uh, referencing philosophy in his work. Uh, in in his own interviews and in his diary, he seems very matter of fact in that a lot of the things he did were just due to his taste and his own personal sense of style and balance. Uh, he shot from the ground because he felt that that gave the best balance to the scene visually and that he he enjoyed that composition. He had a philosophy that every single scre- every single shot of a film should be like a photograph. And I'll get into this more when we're when we're going through the synopsis about the kind of effects that has on the way he makes film. But uh, but yeah, he's he's incredibly uh, idiosyncratic, and the West came to him very late in comparison to like Kurosawa, and their perspectives on him are still pretty interesting. Um, That's interesting. Yeah, I I no- noticed a lot of like foreground elements and things like that that I could definitely see. Uh, when you're talking about Orientalism and stuff, I could <laughs> I could hear my professors now talking about hoaxai and all that stuff, and um, yeah, I could I could see that um, being attributed to that for sure. Um, so the the music for this is composed by uh, Kojun Saito, who the um, Ozu worked exclusively with uh, Shoch- Shochiku, uh mm-hmm. the studio. 
and was the uh, allegedly the only director who was able to hear the entire composition for his movie before uh, actually completing the film uh, yeah. because he was so particular about it. But his his music was his demands for music was that he wanted uh, sunny day music always. Uh, okay. And and something that is a theme, uh, allegedly a theme through most of his movies, is that the weather is always very nice, regardless of like how uh, how sad or maudlin a scene is. That the music is always happy, the weather is always nice, because I, I think in commentary, like the world does not bend to our personal emotions. Mm. And so like these things, the world keeps going on. Things are cheerful, even if you personally are not. Also, if you have too much wind and rain, uh, I think it adds too many random factors <laughs> to the way things would be composed. Yeah, which like he, he very rarely shot outside in general and preferred to shoot in studio. And I think it may have also been just a consideration that it's mm. a, a, a pain to do all that stuff. Um. Uh, so the cast uh, for this movie is pretty crazy. Uh, our star uh, uh, playing the uh, uh, middle-aged widower Shuhei Hirayama is uh, Chishu Ryu, who uh, appears in uh, Kurosawa's Redbeard, Dreams. He's in part three of Human Condition. And uh, maybe more importantly to this podcast, 43 of the Torosan movies mm-hmm. as the uh, the monk. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Let's try to figure out where I saw him before. Yeah, I have an intense, like, <laughs> warm warmth uh, for this guy uh, because he's so great in the Torreson films. And, uh, you know, he, he definitely attached to him. So it was, uh, I'm always happy to see him uh, in other stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the, uh, he's, He's an interesting figure because I don't think he's he's as uh, as masterful an actor as Shimura, but he fits a similar kind of profile in a mm-hmm. lot of ways. Um, and he's he's not nearly as warm and is more kind of I guess aloof in in yeah what I've seen him in kind of deadpan yeah. It's interesting. Uh, it <laughs> mixes well with Ozu's directorial style. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which uh, Chishiryu is in uh, many, many of Ozu's films, and Ozu liked working with him, which Ozu said that Chishiryu was not a great actor, but he works well for me. Mm. <laughs> uh, so uh, next in the cast is uh, Hariyama's daughter, Michiko. His uh, middle child, played by Shima Iwashita, who actually received top billing in this movie because she was the uh, big name, uh, popular actress of the day. And uh, Shochiku, during this period, was having some financial difficulties, so they were trying to pump her star power, even though she appears very little in the film. Um, and uh, she's got some some meaty parts, but is. For somebody that would be top build, she's really kind of like a fleeting element. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she's uh, also appeared in Harukiri and a a very interesting movie called uh, Himiko, 
which I'd like to watch someday, which is, uh, reminds me a lot of just like weird seventies, uh, visually striking sci-fi or fantasy, hmm. which, uh, it's about the, the shaman priestess Himiko and, uh, Shima Iwashita is the, the titular starring role. But, uh, go, if I encourage you to go look at, at pictures from that film, it looks interesting. Cool. Um, Next in the cast is uh, Hariyama's oldest son, played by uh, Koichi, played by Keiji Sada, who is uh, in part one of the human condition. Couldn't find much else about him. Uh, Koichi's wife, however, uh, Akiko, is played by Maruko Okada, who we have seen previously as Akimi in uh, the Samurai trilogy, Nimoto Musashi. Mm-hmm. And uh, she was also the etiquette teacher in Tampopo. Oh, ah, telling cool. everybody how I to eat spaghetti. That. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's uh, who could forget that scene. Um, uh, Hariyama's friend Kawaii is uh, played by Nobuo Nakamura, who we recognize from the dip as the deputy mayor from Ikiru and uh, is credited in Tampopo, but I'm not sure who he actually played. I think he may have been in hmm. the the uh. Uh, group of of cooks hmm. at some point. Uh, here I am his other f- uh, co-worker friend, Horie, played by Ryuji Kita, who was uh, Karada in Tokyo Drifter. Oh, wow. So, yeah, the the Phoenix's uh, yeah. boss. Right, Jed. yeah. Man, yeah. Yeah, this is just full of stuff. Um... Uh, and then two other notable casts, Daisuke Kato as Sakamoto, who's the auto shop guy that shows up in the noodle shop, mm-hmm. who is in, uh, he shows up as a background character in a lot of stuff. He was in Seven Samurai, Yojimbo, Ikiru, and also uh, the uh, the Samurai trilogy. Yeah, he was great. And then finally, uh, Ijiro Tono, who plays the gourd, uh, appeared at, also worked with uh, Kurosawa a lot, and I believe he was on—he was the only uh, actor in the movie who was not a Shochiku uh, contract player. I think he was actually from Toho hmm. uh, on loan, and he was in uh, Yojimbo, Seven Samurai, and was also one of the uh, Japanese admirals in Tora Tora Tora, the uh, the American film. Oh, okay. So yeah, it's star-studded as far as. Uh, Toho guys films go. Yeah. <laughs> um, a lot of, a lot of links back. So, uh, getting into the film itself, we get a, uh, just a very simple, uh, role of, of the cast and credits over these very, very basic illustrations of grass, which apparently even for Ozu, this is like an illustrious credit sequence. He normally just shoots it over, over just blank burlap. Um, but uh, just the slightly different uh, illustrations of this grass, and then we get our first kind of taste of how uh, Ozu actually does uh, movement, quote in his films, because uh, something I did not mention earlier is that he refuses to move the camera ever. Uh, I believe uh, 
uh, Roger Ebert said that he in Tokyo Story he moves uh, Ozu moves the camera an uncharacteristic amount, which amounts to one single time throughout the film. <laughs> um, so to to the way he uh, he gets around this creatively in a lot of scenes, and one of it to do establishing shots of things, he will uh, show a a a a scene for a few seconds and then cut to another scene that has a small element of the original scene. So, you know, that you, you understand how they're connected. And even though you haven't moved, moved or, or continuously transitioned from one to the other. So we get a shot from smokestacks, uh, to a shot with smokestacks in an office building, then into the office building down the hallway then into the actual office of Hiroyama with smokestacks in the background. So even though he's not uh, like there's no tracking shots or anything, we get a strong sense of, of movement and transition through this scene to establish where we are. And it reminds me a lot of kind of uh, uh, comics uh, Mm. pacing. Yeah. And the way that all kind of fits together. But uh, our first shot of Hiroyama is him stamping papers, which uh, reminds me a lot of the beginning of Ikiru, mm-hmm. which I, I guess uh, stamping papers is just shorthand for what Japanese businessmen did for uh, for their paperwork. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. And then he, uh, a secretary enters. It's not his regular secretary. His normal secretary is uh, is out preparing to get married and taking care of her family. And so it kind of lays the groundwork for this being a, a, a theme throughout the entire thing. But the way that Ozu likes to plot his movies is just this like madden- maddening meandering path through the film which is i think why like my initial read of of uh tokyo story and my reaction for the first maybe 20 minutes of this film was like this is boring Mm. because it's not like here's here's the build-up here's the plot things are happening it's just kind of a series of vignettes where it's a bunch of mundane stuff happening and it will eventually loop back to where it's trying to go but it takes its time getting there yeah i I think it 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 adds like some like a way of it's a way of like kind of adding some realism to it in a way it makes everything feel very real and grounded but it is kind of tough um so the the as the secretary leaves uh we get another shot back in the hallway and and then uh kawaii enters and a lot of what Ozu does is this kind of like cadence of repeating similar shots or having similar sequences over and over again. So you kind of like understand the structure of his scenes when it goes back and does something similar. Mm -hmm. Um, But also he will occasionally do this as he will play with this as like include kind of Easter eggs or even use it for jokes. Um, And yeah, the, it wasn't yet, but like when I went back and rewatched this to take more detailed notes, just catching all of the like weird repetition and kind of lyricism in his in his filmmaking was 
wild. There is it a lot of people like repeating lines to each other. Um, where someone will say like, I, I can't think of an example, but where someone will say something and then the other person will basically say it right back to them. It's yeah. very interesting. Um, and also, so, uh, the, the commentary pointed this out. I didn't catch it myself, but when, uh, the secretary leaves and Kawhi enters, it looks like it's the same shot, but it is slightly off like <laughs> an inch to the left. <laughs> And this is the kind of thing that he was super particular about where he would go nudge shots and he wasn't concerned with continuity. So he would occasionally do this within the same scene. And uh, also in this scene, you kind of get how he likes to layer the scene with uh, he puts because he's so low to the ground and zoomed out. He likes to put a lot of props and stuff in the foreground. Mm -hmm. And then so you have uh, props in the foreground, a, a the, the figure in kind of the middle and then because it's just this flat sh static shot, he usually meticulously designs the backgrounds as well for a lot of things to kind of uh, catch the eye or, or, or places of interest. He'll usually include a, a shock of red, which was apparently his favorite color, just as, as something to draw interest while the scene is going on. And earlier in the film, when we first see uh, Hiriyama, it's the... Uh, the red in the smokestacks. It's a, a motif that goes throughout the entire movie. Um, and then the, the next thing that happens is what really like th something else that really threw me off about his filmmaking is that when Kawhi sits down and here Yama goes to talk with him, the, uh, the uh, shot reverse shot of it is uh, mm -hmm. the camera is basically on the table in between them. And it is a perfectly square shot dead on of them talking at the camera going back and forth and you still get uh, the kind of foreground layering that you had, but it is so weird to have, it's not over the shoulder or anything. It is just dead on. Like they're standing right in front of you talking to them. Yeah. They're like looking slightly to the side so that they're not like looking directly at you, which gives it a little bit of feeling like they're speaking to each other, but it's like, literally like one person will say a line, then it'll cut to the next person. They'll say a line, then it'll cut line cut line like that uh and it's yeah kind of crazy um uh, the commentary talked about how it ozu and his uh uh screenwriter actually put the length of time in those of the cuts into hmm. the script eventually <laughs> crazy because they got it down to where he decided he liked exactly seven seconds between cuts <laughs> so ah, you'll I'm have squinting so hard right now i know so <laughs> it is so weird and meticulous and so unlike anything else I've ever seen. Like this movie just the, the structure of it just blew my mind. All of the Yeah. Motion. I thought about, I know we keep kind of getting off track here, but I, I thought a lot about like how you'd have to set that up to have one person say a line and then kind of the next person say their line. And it, it really struck me that this must have taken a lot longer to make his movies than, say these movies you hear about like Tokyo Drifter where they filmed it in like three weeks or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how, in, how long it is in comparison to uh, a lot of uh, other stuff at the time, but I think he was working on this for a couple years actually, because his mother mm -hmm. died while filming two years before he did. And mm -hmm. the film came out in the, the year he died. So, wow. um, 
But yeah, I, I think they probably save some time because there's no like crazy action scenes or huge set pieces or anything. But still, sure. just like having to uh, the the time taking or taking the time to set up these shots and then meticulously record that dialogue where you have the, the just the right amount of time before and after. Um. But uh, uh, so back to to the actual synopsis. Kawhi and uh, Hiroyama are are hanging out. Kawhi has a uh, a marriage prospect for Hiroyama's daughter, but uh, Hiroyama is not having it. They briefly talk about their friend Horie and his young wife, and joke about uh, obliquely joke about penis pills, mm. and you kind of get a little bit of. Uh, Ozu's sense of humor where these, these are like middle-aged businessmen, but they're still like have the same kind of sense of humor of like rowdy young men from (laughs) time to time. And, uh, they set, set up a, a recurring gag where, uh, he, uh, Hiryama is, is going to meet Horie to discuss a kind of class reunion to celebrate a teacher. One of them bumped into, and Kawhi is like, no, I don't want to do that. I'm going to a baseball game. And the, like, this is another thing that I caught in the rewatch is uh, Kawhi declines because he wants to go see a baseball game he has tickets for. And the scene transitions to a baseball stadium. And we get a few shots of the baseball stadium and it, kind of implying that we're now following Kawhi to his baseball game to see what's going on there. Then after a few shots of the baseball stadium, it then trans it, it uh, transitions to or cuts to a shot of baseball being played on a TV at a bar somewhere. You hear people in the background, and then uh, shows a shot of the people watching the baseball game. And then we go down the hall and into a private room to see that Kawhi, who said he was not going to be there because he wanted to see the baseball game, is now in a completely separate room where he can't even see the TV that the baseball is on. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, some some of the transitions in this movie I noted are really interesting. That one uh, included. Uh, it might have just been me because I was trying to figure out the structure of this movie, but it felt like uh, once somebody had left, you kind of followed them until uh, y- you followed them um, mm-hmm. uh, for their next scene, I guess. Yeah, it's not it's not a hard and fast rule, but apparently that's how he likes to do a lot of his movies. Where frequently, once once a kind of vignette has has completed, you will follow one person out of that scene to the next like bit of story before it loops back around. Yeah, it was uh, pretty interesting. Yeah, it, it, like I said, um, not a uh, you know it wasn't super consistent, but that's something I noticed throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Uh, Hiriyama, Kawaii, and uh, Horie are all sitting here drinking, and and drinking is a huge kind of consistent theme throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, they're at this kind of like private room in a somewhat upscale restaurant, drinking, talking about uh, having this this class reunion thing. Which once again, Kawaii is like, "There's no way I'm going to that. I don't want to. I don't like that guy. I never liked that teacher. I don't want to do this. I won't be there." Um, then they transition to talking to Horier about his young wife and Horier is kind of being gross and bragging about how great it is. <laughs> and, uh, they tease him about, uh, penis pills again. 
And then the hostess shows up and in the middle of them teasing Horier and they tease her some, which she like feigns being offended and, and walks away. It seems like she's kind of used to it. Yeah. Um, and uh, a, a, another uh, thing that like the repetition in this in this film, uh, Hiriyama is seated at the back. Uh, Kawai is seated in front of the alcove that has a flower in it, a, a red flower, and then Horie is seated by the door. And uh, then every time we go back, Hiriyama is always in the same place, but they are they mix up who is seated elsewhere. And there's always a different color flower in that pot in the alcove, which hmm. is like one of those kind of like Easter eggs of uh, visual interest that I mentioned. Hmm. Uh, so Horia's young wife arrives and she's very like shy and embarrassed and doesn't want to, to deal with hanging out with the, these other old men and kind of whisks Horia away as they get some more ribbing in before they go. Um, and eventually Hiriyama comes home and we meet uh, Michiko, his daughter, for the first time, who as, is, complains that he's been drinking again, to which he says it's, it's only been a few drinks, which is yet another kind of uh, uh, refrain we'll, we'll hear as he comes home. Um, and so she kind of like, she takes his coat and hat, hangs it up, and he comes in. We also see uh, his youngest son, Kazuo, who also lives at home. Uh, they're told uh, Koichi stopped by and left or stopped by for something, but left. He left some donuts and uh, we get a kind of scene of uh, uh, Hiriyama and Kazuo kind of like making demands of Michiko while she complains that he, she didn't know that he did. She didn't need to make him dinner and all this stuff. But Michiko, instead of just being the kind of, uh, submissive woman I would have expected from, like I said, I was under the impression that Ozu is very traditionalist, which he is in, in a lot of aspects, but his, his, uh, his women characters in this movie are all pretty like fiery to the men mm -hmm. in their lives, even if they're mm -hmm. fulfilling traditional roles. And yeah. so Michiko is just kind of like, uh, not having it and telling it, telling them to take care of themselves. Uh, even though she's, we constantly see her doing things for them like laundry and, and whatnot. And so we, we kind of get the feel of, of that Michiko is taking care of her father and, and Kazuo, even though they're, they're not particularly grateful or, or gracious about it. Um, next we, we finally see Koichi who we've heard about coming home to his wife, Akiko, who talk about the, his reason for being there was borrowing money to get a refrigerator uh, and uh, Akiko teases Koichi uh, by talking about their neighbor is having a kid named Koichi, and she said, "That's awful. Don't do that. If that <laughs> that kid won't be any good if you do that." Yeah, I like Akiko a lot. Yeah, she's she's great. Um, she's constantly like sassing her husband mm -hmm. and yeah. fussing at him. Uh, there is seems I can't remember like if it's nice. yeah uh, I can't remember if it's this scene or a later one when she's uh, kind of ribbing him when he gets home where she complains that he's always too tired when she gets home, which <laughs> apparently like that was, uh, was pretty risque for films mm. uh, or especially for Oz's films to like acknowledge 
that uh, a, a woman would be interested in sex like that. Right. Scandalous. Um, yeah. Uh, so after that, we uh, Akiko kind of pouts and eats some grapes. Um, then we, we go back to work uh, at the office with Hiriyama, and we have uh, similar establishing shots, but then we go a different way down a hallway to a different office uh, where everything is basically the the shots and establishing shots there are oriented in a different way and we see it's uh, Kawhi's office and he is facing a different direction from uh, 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 Hiriyama's office and uh, Michiko walks in showing that she is an office lady in addition to taking care of her uh, father and brother. So she has a day job on top of that. And Kawhi talks about his, his the marriage offered directly to her, but she declines because she has to take care of her, her father and brother because what would they do without her? And so she's she doesn't seem uh, she doesn't seem displeased with this fate. She seems a little resigned to it, but she also recognizes she loves her her father and brother, and like this is this is her duty to take care of them, and she seems pretty happy with it uh, most of the times that she's she's confronted. So she declines uh, Kawhi's Kawhi's offer. So after the scene, we we finally get our class reunion dinner with uh, the teacher they refer to as the Gord, who oh, yeah. we we see him and he's like he's older than everybody there, even though everybody's like middle aged or a little more gray. Uh, but he he's notably older, and he everybody there has like very well tailored suits and look very nice, whereas the Gord suit is uh, a little ruffled and uh, very oversized and ill fitting. And so they're all getting drunk, talking about the good old days. And uh, the uh, he was apparently a calligraphy teacher as he's sitting there uh, eating his food. He eats a sea eel, which he has never had before, which is kind of astonishes uh, everybody there who is now a uh, apparently well-off businessman. And uh, writes in the air the the characters composing or the, the kanji composing uh, mm-hmm. the word for seal and uh, talks about his life and how he's, he's so happy that all of these, his, his students still fondly remember him and continues to get em, like embarrassingly drunk as <laughs> they get in some more teasing of Horie and his uh, child bride because the gourd asks if uh, Horie has any or, uh, any granddaughters, and Hiriyama chimes in saying that uh, his his new wife might as well be one. <laughs> um. So the gourd gets uh, stinking drunk, and Hiriyama and Kawaii uh, take him home to where he lives, which is a noodle shop in a kind of what seems like a a not rough but less well to do part of town. And they meet uh, the Gord's daughter in an awkward scene as she tries to like thank them for their kindness and and uh, offers them things, but they they kind kind of want to get out of there. But the Gord yeah, then demands more alcohol. Drunk teacher, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's just a super awkward scene where they're trying to leave, and and their teacher is demanding more alcohol of his daughter, who is clearly uncomfortable, mm. and. Uh, and we we 
I've gotten the, we knew that she had, uh, had not married and in order to take care of him, but seeing her in the state. And then once they finally do leave, just like how upset she is at her, her drunken father just coming home and like a, a small moment of like, this, this is just my life. This is, this is not good. Mm-hmm. As he sits there, like dozing off, talking to himself. Yeah, it was rough. And uh, then we immediately transition to a sunny day and happy music. <laughs> um, because, like I said, is the world does not does not pay attention to to individuals like that. And uh, so, the next scene we get is they're they're Horie, Hiriyama, and Kawhi are back at the the nice restaurant. Uh, well, Horie is not there yet, so. Uh, as uh, Kawhi sits next to the door and Hiryama in his normal spot, they're hanging out talking. The hostess comes back in and uh, Hiryama mishears something and, or doesn't hear something and asks Kawhi to repeat it. At which point Kawhi has decided to play a prank on the hostess and <laughs> starts talking, uh, starts talking about how it's terrible that Horie died and they're playing his funeral. And, at this point, I was is playing a prank on me too because I was like, "Did I miss something here?" Yeah, it's, it's just yeah. been one day, right? Yeah. Um, and so they carry on for a little while, and uh, I, I feel like this is one of the scenes where we really get a lot of like personality from Hiryama because he's so kind of like quiet and taciturn through most of the movie, but here he's like mm-hmm. not not missing a beat and going along with the joke. Um. He's just very deadpan and they, they play along for a while when all of a sudden the, the hostess is like, you're just messing with me. He just walked through the door. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. You get the sense that this is kind of their type of humor that they do often with each other and stuff is, mm -hmm. you know, BSing each other and stuff. Yeah. The, in the 1930s, uh, a lot of Ozu's films had to do with like, uh, rowdy college age men instead of uh, mm. middle aged businessmen. So he kind of aged up as he worked through his career. Mm. But uh, in a lot of those movies, his characters would play pranks like this. And so he's showing that even though these men have grown up and are are older and, and businesses, they still have that kind of like it's it's, a, it's kind of boys will be boys attitude, right? Which this this film has a like good bit of kind of baked in misogyny to it, which like is unfortunate, but, mm. but looking at the time it was made there, like the marrying off women because it's what's good for them, that kind of thing. Yeah. Like, but, um, and, and harassing the, the hostess over random stuff. But like I said, he's, he's expressing his own kind of like, like I said, boys will be boys. Mm-hmm. Um. So Horie comes in. They've they've uh, accumulated a monetary gift for the gourd and have decided that Hiryama, because he lives closest, will be the one to to uh, give it to him. And so we go back to uh, the gourd's neighborhood. This time we get a. Previously, we just saw the alleyway first because they arrived in a taxi. This time we get a full establishing shot of this area that looks like it. A lot of it has been like. Uh, 
dug up. There's a lot of earth, just like piles of dirt sitting around. And then we follow from uh, a fence to some barrels uh, and then uh, some barbed wire back to the alleyway where we see the barber pole and then the noodle shop. Uh, worth noting is that in, in one of the long, long shots where we first see the fence, there are a couple posters on it. And no. <laughs> uh, apparently separately, Joey and I both like immediately went to look up uh, what these posters were. One of them, uh, both of us did. And, and then Joey did some like more deep diving to get the second one. Uh, <laughs> so the first one uh, was uh, another film from 1962, uh, Harakiri, which, as, as I said, some of the other actors in this movie actually were in. And uh, remind yeah, me. Yeah, and that one's one this like bright red with a stark like uh like black silhouette uh well not silhouette but this sort of like kind of drawing of a face mm -hmm. uh that stood out you know even in that kind of far away shot and which once again a red accent mm -hmm. yeah and a lot of true. these establishing shots he likes to have a woman wearing a, a red sweater walking through yeah so it grabbed my attention immediately and and i must admit that my first thought because it's this sort of like wild looking maybe samurai era dude with a beard and stuff i was like is that mifune i don't know what is that and uh you know but uh yeah it was harakiri um but what was the other one uh the other one was a uh chieko baisho uh movie uh who's sakura from uh the torasan movies um mm. called uh well the translation of the title is mama i need you <laughs> uh, and I don't really know much about it. I I googled a little bit about it, and it was basically completely un uh, accessible for Western <laughs> audiences. Yeah. But, um. But yeah. So an old. Uh. You know this this movie is like seven years I think before Torasan. So like yeah, this is a an old role for uh Baisho and uh, probably an early role for her. And uh, then yeah, Chishu Ryu of course was in Torasan yeah. too. Yeah. I was I was very pleased you went that extra step and it just happened to be uh by show in the movie yeah but uh so hiriyama goes to goes to back to the noodle shop to give this gift to the gourd and uh the gourd comes out instead of wearing his ill-fitting suit he is now wearing his just kind of like plain clothes that he wears as uh, in in the kitchen he has very like uh, uh, fry cook look to him with an apron and kind of do rag and everything. And it's, it's interesting that even though the, uh, something that is touched on in the commentary is the kind of reverence for teachers, even though, even if they have lost their relative station in society, which is something that shows up in a couple other hmm. Ozu films, uh, interesting for Ozu who, uh, dropped out of college at some point. He's got a, an inter interesting relationship with academia, hmm. but uh, Hiriyama still, even though he is he's a well-to-do businessman and his former teacher is is basically just a, a noodle chef at this point, he's still affording him respect and giving him this gift and and uh, showing him kindness and deference. Uh, but uh, in the midst of that, we have. Uh, Sakamoto, a guy who works at an auto shop down down the street, who is a former military subordinate of uh, of Hiriyama, who uh, recognizes him and then offers to go with him to a different, uh, better restaurant, which is like <laughs> a really harsh dig at this this poor old man that 
Hirayama's there to give a gift to. Um, but they agree to go. The ship that they mention is actually a real ship that uh, was uh, it sunk near the end of the war. So it was the, the kind of suggestion is that he, uh, Hirayama and this other gentleman were, were really in the thick of it as far as combat goes. Hmm. Um, so they go together. We, we get a series of establishing shots of this alleyway that has all these restaurants and bars. And uh, we get a, a specific series of the alley, the the sign, and then inside. And the, the bar is Tori's. And inside, uh, the hostess shows up of the bar, and uh, she reminds Hiryama of his wife. Uh, it's, it's unclear. Uh, much like we never... Uh, later in the film, we never see... Any of the the man that uh, Michiko will eventually marry, we never actually see any flashbacks or anything to uh, Hiryama's wife. Mm. Uh, we don't get any of the kind of internal lives of any of these characters. We only have the very surface level mm. of both what they think and their their previous lives. Everything is is on the everything that we get is just right there surface level. So we never have a flashback to to know what she's like. Uh, there was a brief scene later where he kind of talks about his wife or the, the family talks about her really. But, uh, but yeah, this seeing the hostess of Tories is really the only kind of real idea we get of who his wife was aside from that conversation. But, uh, following that we get, uh, uh, Sakamoto and, and Hiryama talking about the war and Sakamoto kind of like daydreams about what if we had won the war, all of the, uh, all those Americans would be playing, plinking shamisens <laughs> with their hair in top knots, but still chewing gum. Um, while they would be in New York. Uh, and Hiryama, who is, is like kind of fondly reminiscing all, all about the war is still like, no, it's probably better that, that we lost. Which yeah, I thought that was interesting. Which like th- apparently by that time that was a kind of common sen- sentiment because recollections of the war were kind of uh, how accurate or not recollections of the war were kind of it's really all the the kind of all these uh, military imperialists got us into the war and we were just mm-hmm. doing our duty mm-hmm. and we didn't really shouldn't really have done that so it's it's better that we're where we are now. Yeah, that's interesting. Which, which the the defeat it is not to get into like history and politics and kind of like cultural psyche too much, but there, the Im- immediately post war was pretty rough. But by the nineteen sixties, Japan was in the middle of a, a pretty big boom, and people were well off and probably thinking that like, yeah, maybe things aren't so bad now. Maybe this was for the best, but uh. Uh, the the hostess of Tori's uh, asks Sakamoto if he should or she should play the song, and they play the Gunkan March, which is the the Imperial Navy March song, uh, composed in 1897 by uh, 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 Tokigi Setaguchi. And then we get this kind of like real heartwarming goofy thing of them dancing around with the, uh, with a rigid salute. Yeah. 
That's so funny. But yeah, the uh, the actor who played uh, Sakamoto Daisuke Kato Kato uh, is apparently he was in a lot of. Uh, I highlighted some of his background roles in films we might know, but he was better known as a comedic actor. Mm. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all. And it keeps yeah. cutting back to the you know the hostess or whatever, like uh, saluting and bobbing back and forth. It's so funny. Yeah. Like I was like, what is going on? <laughs> I know it's crazy. It, the 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 thing that got me about that scene is it just keeps going. Like it, it just keeps going for so long, which yeah. is uh, weirdly something. Another thing like as as things get repeated and, and kind of mirrored throughout the film, uh, the next time this happens, it will also go on for so long. Mm. Um, so, so following that, uh, that night out, Hiriyama comes back home. He's greeted again by Michiko to the same, like, you've been drinking. Yeah, but not too too much. Um, and, and she takes his stuff. And he goes and sits down. And then they talk about, uh, he talks about how this lady at the, the bar reminds him of his wife. And they share kind of like their vague recollections of their mom. Um, uh, the youngest, I believe, is the one that recalls her wearing uh, kimonos. But then um, Ichiko recalls her during wartime when uh, she wore trousers because a lot of women in wartime just uh, uh, is what they did. And so we have this kind of like different attitudes and remembrances of their mother from like different eras of her life before she died. So, uh, so Koichi is, is finally there, and that's when he asks for the loan for the the refrigerator, and he asks for uh, 50,000 yen, which I don't know the exchange rate back then, but today it's what, like $500, which in 1962 so. money, like it's just roughly in 1962 money, that was still probably a good chunk. Yeah, but certainly. It's enough to buy a refrigerator. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which was the, the hot one of the hot new things. It was refrigerators, televisions, uh, and uh, well, I guess televisions weren't that. The, the televisions had had come along a little earlier, but uh, the the signs of prosperity were refrigerators, televisions, and vacuum cleaners. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we next go see Akiko um, Koichi's wife at a neighbor's house. Uh, at kind of fiddling with her neighbor's vacuum cleaner, uh, talking a little bit. And then she goes back home and uh, to her apartment where Koichi shows up with a handful of golf clubs. (laughs) And uh, this is the next scene that like just the, the whole movie is visually interesting in the way it's shot and composed. But this is maybe the like, wildest one and probably where I first started being like what is going on here this is wild um so he comes home and uh the various shots of of him and Akiko uh arguing talking are uh are pretty interesting but then we get a scene where or a shot of just the the fr- straight on of uh the main area of their apartment where he sets down a mat and starts practicing his golf swing. But his framing in the scene is that his 
he is completely like decapitated in the scene. We can't see any of him. He is just practicing his golf swing uh, with nothing else going on in the shot. And I'm like, what is going on? But then uh, Akiko comes from around the other side and we realize that the shot is where it is to frame her when she finally comes into the shot. Hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, something I didn't mention earlier is that here Yama's house uh, is, is very uh, traditional Japanese in, in its styling. Whereas uh, uh, Kuichi and Akiko's house is far more Western with like, kind of Western style decor and, and yeah, wallpaper definitely. a, and a, a big clock on the wall. Uh, so they, he, they talk about the golf clubs for a little while and how he asked for extra money to get the golf clubs. And Akiko just like savages him for being a, a child wanting toys, basically <laughs> about how bad he is with money and everything. Uh, but he asked for a little extra. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's got it covered. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I love um uh I half expected him to sort of turn on the TV, you know, when he's in the living room. Mhm. Mm-hmm. But instead he smokes cigarettes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's I think that's a lays there. Kind of fun. Yeah, I I feel like well, I guess that's what they did when television wasn't a thing. Yeah. <laughs> they just sit there and smoke. Um, yeah, I, I really love, uh, the acting from Koichi's actor through a lot of this because he, he spends a lot of the movie, like basically pouting like a child. (laughs) Um, but he's so, he's just so good at it. And the, the way he moves, uh, in those scenes is just like a lot of the, the rest of the stuff. It feels very real and very natural. It's not exaggerated. And like, I don't know, it, it felt the, a lot of stuff about this movie just feels very comfortable, uh, but especially his performance. And I always love any of the scenes where the, the two of them are kind of arguing about something. Uh, yeah, because even, even though she's like ribbing him and they're fighting about stuff, it still seems very warm. And she always comes off as like sassy instead of mean. Uh, so then we see him again fi- with on a rooftop uh, practicing with the golf clubs. Uh, there's another woman in a, in a red sweater in the scene and his, his friend, uh, name. I don't have written down right here. Who That's all I right. can't remember. Uh, I think it's Miura. Um, talking to him about how great the clubs are. They're real. They're, they're McGregor's, which like, it's still, it's still a big name brand of golf clubs. Hmm. Um, but, uh, talking about how he's he's trying to decline and being like no i don't i can't i I want these but no it it doesn't make sense i'm bad with money i can't and and it swears off them uh but he goes back and we see him back home just like further pouting lounging around in his uh casual clothes which is very like 1962 style icon (laughs) his mustard sweater um but he's just hanging out and uh uh, Michiko shows up to their apartment to drop off the money and uh, this is one of my favorite scenes where uh, so Koichi is the oldest brother so uh, Michiko should be showing him deference and his wife should also be showing him deference and they're just like both savaging him like making fun <laughs> of him for being pouty and petulant all day about these golf clubs and 
and how bad he is at stuff. And it's just very funny. And he, he's just kind of weathering their assault. Yeah. Saying, shut up, shut up. Um, <laughs> when uh, when his coworker finally shows up with the clubs, insisting that he buys them because the, the friend that's selling them really needs the money. And they they litigate it for a while until finally, like, he's like, no, I, I can't do it. And about that time, uh, Akiko shows back up with the money to pay for the clubs. Like, finally, after, after mostly after it's settled, finally giving up. Yeah. And and giving Koichi what he wants, which apparently, like I said, there's a lot of uh, a lot of this kind of boys will be boys stuff that goes on in a lot of his movies. And the end result is frequently that. Uh, in the end, they they do get spoiled by mm-hmm. by their wife or their family or whatever. Uh, so then both Michiko and the the coworker leave at the same time to go wait at the train station, and uh, we get some flirtation back and forth, which is another one of these like crazy fakeouts, because yeah. in a tra- traditionally structured movie like. Okay, now the plot's really going. We were trying to marry her off a little while ago, but she wasn't interested. But now this, this is gonna, be, this is the love interest. She's gonna like fall in love with this guy and decide that this is what she wants to do. Yeah, um, I definitely felt that as well. I was like, ah, I see where this is going. <laughs> yeah, uh, and so the very next thing that happens is the movie completely resets. Uh, so uh, I, I keep talking about how there's repetition. It almost shot for shot repeats to the very beginning of the movie with the smokestacks going to Hirayama's office and him mm-hmm. stamping papers. And so I was like, what, what the hell is going on? Um, but his, his actual secretary comes in this time, uh, instead of the, the substitute secretary. And they talk a little bit about marriage and he's, he's still considering kind of like, well, do what, what's best for, for Michiko, which I do with her, uh, when the Gord shows up to thank Hiriyama for for the gift that he realized that Hiriyama had left after the Gord had refused it. Uh, so Hiriyama is is about to leave work anyway and takes the Gord with him to meet Kawaii. And so this time the Gord is the one that's in the alcove. And uh, this is the third time they've been in there and there's a third different flower in the pot on that alcove. And it is uh, the Gord, Kawaii, and, and Hiryama as uh, the Gord is getting very, very drunk. But this time when he's drunk, he's not talking about how happy he is and how thankful he is about everybody. He's talking about how he's ruined his daughter's life by refusing to, to let her kind of live her own life and forcing her to take care of him. Um, but he gets so sad and drunk that he eventually passes out, uh, which... Uh, he he briefly wakes back up and Kawhi is like, no, we'll just just go back to sleep. We're, we're you're okay. Um, but then Hiryama, kind of like a little rattled by this, uh, you see him start drinking more himself, uh, and and Kawhi is finally getting through to him about like, you you can't drag down your daughter forever. <laughs> and so this is one of the weird like misogyny things like yes she shouldn't have to take care of him forever but the only path that we are given uh as as being valid for this is to marry her off to another man yeah so which like and if you do that then you're sort of forfeiting this like 
homekeeper for yourself. <laughs> yeah. And that's that's so, the difficult choice. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a it's a bit of a fraught situation, but like I said, just kind of looking at it through the through the lens of like or the context of the time, this is just how things were. Yeah, sure. Um so Hiriyama comes home and is even more drunk than we've seen him before. Uh, but he actually demands that Michiko talk to him, which she's in the middle of doing stuff, but eventually she relents and comes to, to talk to him. And he insists that she gets married and, uh, and, and she's just not having it. She's like, no, I, my place is to take care of, of you and Kazuo. What would you guys do without me? Everything is like, no, that you really need this. But uh, eventually she gets frustrated and leaves as uh, Kazuo arrives. And uh, there, there's a short, cute uh, thing that I like where Kazuo is talking about a girl that he likes. And here Yama asks, like, who is it? And she's like, oh, she, she's the conductor of my bus. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's like, she's, what, she's cute and plump and, yes, and nice or something. It makes it a bit like a round gesture instead of an hourglass like you would normally yeah. see and stuff. It's very cute. Um, but uh, Kazuo is like yelling at Michiko to make his dinner and kind of hearkening back to when uh, – to to earlier in the film when she was like, you guys need to learn how to take care – or help around the house, take care of yourselves. Uh, Hiriyama tells Kazuo to go make his own dinner, which he does or gets up to go do. Um. So, like, uh, then uh, we we go back to uh, Koichi and Akiko, and this time, like, have, having resolved the subplot of the golf clubs, <laughs> uh, things are different now, and Koichi is actually wearing an apron making dinner at home, so it's kind of like another one of those, like, modernization things where people are kind of mixing up roles a little more. Yeah. Uh, so Akiko comes home with uh, with hamburgers because they're they're the hip, westernized couple. <laughs> yeah. Um. And uh, Koichi is uh is is told about his coworker and or, or Michiko's interest in his coworker. And so they start talking and they're like, "Well, we, we'll let's let's get this done." Uh, and eventually Hiroyama shows up and goes with Koichi. They decide to go to Tori's bar together and uh, kind of talk things through together. And we get a bit of an interesting scene where uh, it, it is the two of them. Uh, Hiroyama is drinking like uh, whiskey and water and, and Koichi is, is eating dinner and drinking a coffee at the bar. But uh, they talk about uh, the the hostess and how Koichi doesn't really think she resembles their mother or her, his mother that much. And they go back and forth and uh, talk a little bit about like Michiko and what to do about the, this coworker to try to like get her taken care of. Um, but it but it's interesting to see them kind of side by side as like projecting a a man and his son and like the, the similarities and differences there as they both, and uh, 
as they both sit there eating and drinking together for a, a quiet part of the scene where uh, Hiriyama is like eating bar nuts or something. Yeah. <clears throat> but that was another one of those things where I, I really like the kind of uh, visual echo between the two of them. Mm. Uh, there's also here during uh, that I noticed there's a calendar on the wall that is, uh, I believe, September, October on the calendar. Okay. And also all of the, the liquor bottles have their, you can tell what brand they are because apparently uh, he was such a prolific drinker that Suntory and Sapporo would, uh, every Christmas, sent uh, Ozu cases of of liquor and beer <laughs> as as just a thank you for being a good a good and famous customer mm-hmm. so it's unclear if that was like product placement or a favor or what <laughs> those are just his empty bottles yeah <laughs> uh in the commentary they talk about he and his screenwriter would uh, their their screenwriting process would just be to go to um some remote hotel and just hold up there for a month or two while they hashed out the script. And they, uh, Osu kept track of their bottles or how much he drank. And, uh, they would line their hotel rooms with the bottles and Hmm. it would just like go all the way around with sake bottles. Very interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, the, the commentary suggested that today we would probably recognize Ozu as a high functioning alcoholic. Because he drank so much. Sure. <laughs> um, so, uh, where was I? Koichi and, and uh, his coworker, yeah, Miura, go to Cafe Carmen, another ca- another one of the, like, bars we've seen the, the, uh, the sign of in this, in this alleyway across from, from Tori's. And uh, Mira, it turns out Mira is already secretly engaged to some other woman, even though he's like vaguely interested in Michiko, but it's, it's just not working out. So this is another one of those weird fake outs where like we think we understand where the plot's going and turns out, nope, yeah, we're wrong. I mean, the, the um, chemistry was really there, I think. Uh, they both would have wanted to marry each other, but the timing was off and the uh, the mar- the sort of old way of doing marriage is these sort of business transactions, you know, it's kind of uh, weird, you know, to us, but like, it was kind of like, well, I've already got this marriage planned and I was good. I would have wanted to marry your daughter, but you know. Yeah. But it's, it's just a, another subversion of like, life doesn't always work out, mm-hmm. but we're so used to in films, like, of course that's how it's going to work. That's, that's how you write a movie. And then much like his, his visual style, Ozu is just like wanting to subvert narrative tropes and stuff that are common to like Hollywood style movies. Yeah. Um, uh, an- another thing about this scene is both men have a Sapporo bottle on the side of their table. And every time it goes back and forth, both bottles are oriented in the same direction to the camera. So it looks like the bottle is just kind of shifting an inch left and right in between the shots because it's, it's facing the exact same way, which is something that like, like I said, Ozu is super meticulous about how those props are arranged. So he did that himself looking through the viewfinder just to be like, here's a thing to look at. Weird. Yeah. It's just all these weird little visual Easter eggs. Um, so 
Koichi relays this inf- information to Hiroyama that Mira is, is uh, unavailable. And uh, Michiko comes home and, and Hiroyama tells her the news. She's She tries to stay composed at first, but runs upstairs and is is upset. Uh, uh, Kazuo says she was crying. Um, Hiroyama goes upstairs to check with her, but she's not... We see she hasn't actually been crying, but she is, she's clearly upset. But he uh, he convinces her to uh, check to to meet Kawhi's prospect, and she kind of wordlessly, slowly nods, kind of resigned to the idea. And then we get uh, a one of the the few like shots of her having genuine emotion in the movie of her just kind of like upset, fiddling with her measuring tape. Yeah. Uh, presumably from, from sewing or, or dressmaking or whatever. And it is, it is a tough scene just because she's not, she's very clearly upset, but not crying, but just watching her kind of like coil and unfurl that tape is, is subtle, but does a lot. Yeah. Maybe I was just imagining it, but I was kind of seeing her as having sort of watery teary eyes. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I uh, I really liked the scene. I think maybe because amongst so much kind of like, um, you know, I don't know how to describe it, kind of calm scenes and stuff. It, it was I'm kind of hungry for any sort of drama, <laughs> you know. And yeah, this is this is a scene with the most conflict throughout the whole movie, mm-hmm. aside from maybe the the one where. Uh, or the, the most real like emotional conflict aside from when the gourd uh, and his daughter are yeah. together. Yeah, definitely. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely the kind of like, this is the big thing that happens is this, is this one scene? Yeah. Uh, so then Hiriyama travels to Kawhi's house and we get a bunch of, of views of the neighborhood as he's going there. He meets Kawhi's wife, uh, uh, Nobuko, in the, the doorway who is like very kind and cheerful. Um, he goes inside to see that Kawhi is playing go with Horie and he sits down, pours himself a drink of uh, Johnny, Johnny Walker that is conspicuously sitting on the table. And uh, they're talking and, and uh, Kawhi suggests that Hiriyama is too late that uh, Horie had a, uh, had somebody that he knew that needed to get married. And so that girl has now taken Hiroyama's prospect and, or, uh, yeah, taking the, taking the prospect and Hiroyama is back to, to square one with trying to find Mary off his daughter. Um, at, at which point he is like, he is kind of crestfallen and, uh, Nobuko kind of gives up the game and, and says that, uh, admonishes them for for pranking him and it's a callback to when uh when Kawhi and Horie were or Kawhi and Hiriyama were were pretending Horie was dead mm-hmm. to the hostess and he says that's I, he, I'm getting you back for that basically mm-hmm. um so they plan things out uh we we never meet Michiko's husband but we we see her before the wedding in her uh wedding regalia and clad in, in red and white, which red and white since the beginning of the movie with the, with the smokestacks has been a color motif throughout the film. 
and we see her and she's just got like it's she's very hard to read she looks she she certainly has a look on her face but i don't know how to describe it this it it could be resigned it could be upset um but yeah there's just something going on as as Horier is is like tries to be excited for her as like all the all the men are in the house uh, getting ready with their Texan tails and they have a a short exchange together where she's about to leave his life and then and then she does and the apartment empties and we are given as they all go to the wedding we are giving several shots of the apartment entirely empty uh, just kind of going through the whole house showing these spaces. Yeah, where... and it works very well with uh mm. with the way that Ozu does so meticulously, you know, show uh specific shots throughout the movie so that you're used to seeing those spaces inhabited. Um and so that this definitely is uh, a check in the plus column for uh Ozu's <laughs> style. <laughs> uh it, sure. it's not just that they're they're we're used to seeing them inhabited. We see them uninhabited as well briefly because he likes to shoot these scenes where mm. even if people are talking, there's no one in the frame and then somebody enters the frame. Yeah. So it's kind of like we're seeing these places like mentally expecting because of the cadence of the film, mentally expecting somebody to kind of step in that never shows up. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, and so uh, after that, after the empty apartment, uh, we don't see the wedding. We don't see the husband. We don't see any of that. We see Hiroyama hanging out with with Beckett, uh, Kawhi's house, drinking with him and Horie. Uh, kind of, kind of thinking over the whole thing. And um, at this point, Hiroyama is is a little broken up about his his daughter moving out and and uh, basically kind of like in a way leaving his life. And he's reflecting on it, and they they recall something that the the gourd said that uh, all of us live our lives in the end, all of us live our lives alone. And uh, and uh, Kawhi recalls that, and Hiriyama is kind of like it hits Hiriyama a little too hard, and he says something like, uh, "Raising daughters is barely worth it, or it's not worth it." And just just thinking all this over is when it seems to finally hit him that like the the he he did he was not as close with his daughter as he really wanted to, and the chance to to cultivate that relationship and to like really be there for her is gone now he he has missed that chance she is no longer. Like she's she's going to be around, but she's not part of his life in the same way, and it is kind of too late for him to do anything about that. And so, Hiroyama, in this like sad state, excuses himself and leaves Kawhi's house. He's he's stumbling, very clearly drunk, um, but decides to go to his place of of kind of respite, uh, his last remaining refuge, I guess. Uh, since his daughter is gone, he'll go to the place with the woman that reminds him of his wife, and he goes to Tori's, and he sits there drinking whiskey, looking sad. And this is the callback because she she says, "Should I play that song for you again?" And he's there trying to like be comforted by this woman that looks like his wife, and this place that was like 
a refuge and he's drinking his whiskey and listening to the march. And instead of like kind of, of thinking back fondly to the military service, the it's two younger men kind of uh, mocking Japan's defeat and, and the, the silliness of the, the war era. And this is where that, like I said, it just goes on forever again because we keep expecting it to, to cut outside, which this is the one time we go to Tori's bar where it doesn't show the sign before we go inside mm. and we just keep waiting to leave and waiting to leave. And then it cuts, it cuts to the lights, which is usually at the beginning of the shot when we enter, but then it goes back to Hiroyama just like on the verge of tears drunk and kind of shaking and it just the 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 music keeps playing and it's this like cheerful almost like verging on kind of like at this point cheerfully idiotic music playing in the background while he's just like or playing in the background while he's breaking down and it's like this place is no solace for him either and so eventually he leaves and he comes home and this time, like unlike every other time he comes home, Michiko is not there at the door to greet him. She can't take his hat or coat. He hangs up himself, uh, goes to their living room, and kind of in an echo of of the gourd, um, kind of sat singing drunkenly singing songs to himself. He starts doing that as Kazuo is like, "You should go to bed." Um, uh, Koichi and Akiko were there, but they, they're like, it's, it's late. We need to go and leaves them with just, uh, Kazuo who's ready to go to, go to sleep. And Hiriyama is just in, is still drunk sitting there singing to himself. And he walks through the house looking at, and, and we see these spaces where we, like most of what we see of Michiko is in these spaces in the house. And she's just. We, we kind of feel her, her lack of presence the same way that Hiriyama does. And he looks up towards her room and, and breaks down and finally starts, starts crying as he walks through the house, finally into the kitchen where he pours himself uh, a pot of tea where we've seen Michiko working earlier and then just kind of sits down and, and cries and is ultimately alone. And that's the end of the movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, kind of like, again, with that sort of like base level of everything being pretty, you know, chill <laughs> throughout the whole movie, it was a pretty surprising like rush of emotions at the end there. Mm-hmm. Which like the uh, Ozu's work, like I said, talks about the, the, or has a lot to do with the kind of dissolution of the traditional Japanese family, but I feel like in a broader sense, he's just talking about how life is and like there are joys in life, but there's also a lot of sadness and a lot of loneliness. And he likes to kind of in, in much like the end of, of Tokyo story, he likes to revel in that and remind us that like, there are good times, there are happy times, there's good times with family, but like there will be sad times there there will be times when you are alone and crushed and some like that's just how life is and it's sad and it's scary but it is also like very human mm-hmm. and the way he he depicts that is just like really powerful 
Yeah, totally. And so, yeah, I know we've, we've already talked a lot about like throughout all of this, our kind of reactions to, to the movie, but like Alex overall, what, what is your takeaway here? Um, I liked it on the whole. Uh, I thought the acting was very good and it was shot very beautifully. Um, I am not going to say that I wasn't bored though. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think that's fair. fair. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I was half expecting him to get with, uh, uh, the Gord's daughter. Hmm. Uh, huh. yeah. Cause it, you know, it seemed that she was really lonely and, you know, he eventually would be lonely and it would be a nice, I don't know. I think she'd be age appropriate for him at that point. Right. Yeah. yeah which it, it's interesting that a lot of like at the end of the movie, his, his situation that he's in, there are outs for it. He could like, even though she's married, he could try to cultivate a better relationship with, uh, with uh, Michiko and he could start dating again. But I think they lampshade that earlier in the movie when Kawhi is suggesting that he gets remarried and he is like, no, that would be, I, I, I think that's a little untoward. And then, uh, I think Horie is like, you should get a young wife. And he's like, that's just dirty. <laughs> but yeah. I think he's he's resigned himself of like, he's not going to remarry. Because, yeah, I also thought that he was going to like, try to be flirtatious with the with the Tories hostess. But mm. like, no, he's just there kind of like looking at her because he, she reminds him of something, not because he actually wants to try to be with her. Yeah. And I think that's actually like, probably one of the most human things about that movie, right? Like, you have you ever been interested in somebody because they remind you of somebody else? Like, I feel like that's such a, that's a very relatable thing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in general. Uh, there are parts of this movie that did bother me a little bit uh, just because of the, uh, uh, well, it's partially due to the time frame and, uh, you know, cultural differences and stuff like that. But I didn't like how there were only basically two choices for the woman in this movie. Yeah. Uh, there's no like third choice. Like <laughs> there's an A and a B and there's no C. Uh, and uh, I don't know. It just felt kind of frustrating to me that, uh, you know, Michiko, she was like oh, nuts to getting married or whatever. And she's like, well, I, she, if I had to choose between the two, obviously I would take care of you and my brothers. Um, but then she sort of ends up getting married by force a little bit. Mm-hmm. I don't know. And she seems happy, which is nice. Uh, I don't know. It's it almost feels as if, uh, hmm. It almost feels as if Hiriyama, like he he's trying to become a martyr. Mm. Yeah. And like like oh, well, I'm gonna do you this favor. And, yeah. And I don't know if it's to, hmm. Uh, he seems cheerful throughout most of the movie, so I can't tell if it's uh, in relation to a depression that he has or something like that, or a, uh, I don't know, maybe he's, uh, you know, coming to terms with the fact that this is how all life will go. Like, this is how mm-hmm. life for everybody is going to go at some point, so I might as well just take it with open arms. But, uh mm-hmm. But he obviously does have that revelation when he, he uh, you know, goes to the Gord's house. There's right. The Gord and, and 
and his daughter are definitely like a cautionary example, you know, of what he doesn't yeah. want to have happen, uh, especially to his daughter. Um, yeah. Yeah. But that's another like choice, right? This is just one of two choices. Right. Like, oh, well, either, you know, uh, I can carry on with life the way it is and my daughter can be unhappy or my daughter can be happy and I'll just be lonely for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, I think that's, that's frustrating to me because it seems very narrow minded. Yeah. Um, but I, I guess that's also the point that, uh, that Oz is trying to make here. Um, yeah. Uh, that's that's I, I like once again though I I did I did love uh, the look of it. Um, some of the shots were very very like colorful, uh, painterly even sometimes, and uh, I really did appreciate that. And I also appreciated kind of the uh, well, Hirayama seemed I don't know very, uh, very like a kind of a happy guy. It seemed like a very slice of lifey kind of movie. Mm-hmm. For sure. Um, but yeah, I tweeted while watching it that this is the like most slice of lifeest thing I've ever seen in my life. Like, <laughs> I was yeah. wondering if the vast majority is like nothing <laughs> happens. So that's the thing. Yeah, it's it's so slice of lifey that this is another thing that frustrated me is that I couldn't figure out the structure of the movie. Mm. Normally, movies are you know built into like a three act structure, but I really couldn't figure it out with this one. Uh, there's just stuff that happens, and then the turning point, and then more stuff happens. Uh, it's sort of like you said, Scott, the movie repeats itself. Um, so it's almost like if you're watching two episodes of a formulaic show. Mm, yeah. <laughs> I guess. Um, I'm not saying that's a detriment, but that's uh, that's just an observation that I had. Yeah, I, it, it is it is a little frustrating to me as well. But like like I said, on the second time through, a lot of the stuff made more sense to me. And yeah. and realizing that like there, he does have a path through all of those scenes for the main plot of of like you have to to get a Michiko a husband, but it it's like that's like it's the meta plot of a like thirteen episode season hmm. of these like small uh, almost meaningless vignettes of of other thing minor things happening. So we'll like. This episode is about the golf clubs, but there somebody does mention Michiko getting married. Or mm-hmm. no, that that's the the end of that episode is when she meets the the guy at the train. Yeah. But like so so it's we we weave in and out these smaller stories of and we kind of loop back around at the end to actually wrapping up the the meta plot. But it is very uh very different and difficult to follow if you're not looking for for what is actually going on. Cause it's just meandering, which like, I think that also is part of what makes it feel more boring. Uh, which I, I'll say the thing that really kept me engaged in the film, uh, during the, the parts where less stuff was happening was like freaking out over how bizarre his, uh, cinematography and, and filming style was, uh, which I didn't even get to the way that like he, crosses action lines constantly because of how he shoots. So mm-hmm. we get a, a a scene where it's just like two people having a conversation, but it will do a 360 around the entire room. Basically it's just incredibly bizarre. So like I was, I, I spent a lot of the film basically 
paying attention to how it was shot over the actual plot. And I think that actually kept me more engaged in a lot of it. And then, then I would like tune back into that during the parts where like there were actually more emotion or more interesting things Mm. going on. So I definitely get the, like, I agree that this is, this is still a very boring movie in a lot of ways. Uh, Do you have anything else? No, that's it. All right. Joey. Um, yeah, you know, I, I've been kind of sprinkling my little commentary throughout. I definitely, you know, while I've been <laughs> sort of giving Ozu a lot of little digs about his, you know, directorial style, like, I just, I just have some mixed feelings about it. Like, I, I think that the shots are beautifully composed and are effective, uh, at sort of like framing, uh, I don't know, the, the, of showing the humanity and showing and showing uh, their day-to-day life. But like the complete lack of camera movement is tough for me. And the thing I dislike the most about it are the, the way that as we were talking about that style of conversations where it just cuts back and forth between these straight on shots of characters, like saying one line at each other feels very stilted to me. And like, some actors are better at pulling it off than others, uh, I would say. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes people would feel natural, but sometimes it would get pretty stiff. Like it just felt like someone reading a line. Like it felt almost like somebody was holding up a cue card uh, that they were reading off of. And I'm not going to lie. The thing it reminded me of is in like, if you're playing an Elder Scrolls game and you go up to start a conversation with an NPC, <laughs> it's the exact same camera shot. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, so despite that, the sort of awkward nature of the conversations, the characters did overall feel very real to me. Um, and I definitely felt invested in their story, um, you know, by the end of it. Um, and something that kind of surprises me of how, is how much humor there was in the movie. Like, I found myself laughing quite frequently. And, and a lot of the times that was just based on of like kind of getting to know these people and someone saying something that's like, oh, that's exactly what that person would say, you know? And so I think that that shows uh, a real good understanding of characters and, and people. Um, so, you know, so there, there is a lot of like, uh, you know, humanity to the, to the movie. Um, mm. So <laughs> I liked it, <laughs> question mark, I guess. <laughs> like, yeah, I, I definitely liked it better than Tokyo Story. And I'm curious if, like, given some time, if I came back to Tokyo Story, if I'd appreciate it more. But, like, um, but just to get back to this movie, like, you know, I'm not kind of jumping off the rafters recommending it to everyone, but I'm glad I saw it. I'm curious to see more of Ozu's work. Um, mm. Although I'm also now more cautious kind of knowing that this is his thing and that it doesn't quite go <laughs> with me. Um. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I think I love this movie. Oh, nice. <laughs> there's, there's a lot. I've got a lot of mixed feelings. Like, like Alex brought up the fact that Michiko is only given two paths. Like you either become a widower and, or not become, uh, become an old maid taking care of your father or just get married off. Um, which even more frustrating than the than that is like she like I said she has some good scenes in the movie she's a talented actress and I like her when she shows up but she's basically a plot MacGuffin for most of the movie like she doesn't get to be her own character and that part of that is to an end because 
the movie is about Hiroyama and his reaction to the situation and not hers. But I feel like as even if you're doing that to a point, it just feels kind of cruel to me to like yeah. not take into account I, her feelings at all. You know, something that this reminds me of, uh, sorry to interrupt, but like uh, when I was, I, so I, I scrubbed through the movie to take screenshots for our Twitter account and whatnot. Um, and as I was doing that, I was like, what would be a good, like, episode image? Oh, you know what would be nice is kind of like an image of both uh, Hirayama and his daughter together, uh, since they're the kind of, like, central characters. And, I mean, unless I missed it, like, there are no shots of them together where they're both facing the camera. Like, there's either no. one or the other, or if it's, like, everyone, one of their backs is to the camera, and it creates... It might be a thing that is intentional to create a sort of distance between the two, but I, it's very interesting. Like, I'm not sure what I think about that. <laughs> yeah, so that that is frustrating, but, like, and there's so much else about the movie, and, like, the, the other thing that gives me pause is that uh, this kind, this particular brand of depressing where, like, life just... Movies where where the story is life just keeps going and sometimes it's bad and you can't do anything about it <laughs> is like deeply terrifying to me, mm. which like, I think that's part of the purpose. Part of the thing about the movie is like, well, this, this is just how it is. I don't know if that's supposed to be terrifying, but it's like, it's a truth. And, uh, especially lately for me, that's, that's been like, I don't know, hitting me weird hard. Mm. But, uh, so that, that part is off putting to me. But like the the actual just humanity in in this and in, in these characters and the small moments that the characters have together, especially like uh, uh, with with uh, Koichi and Akiko, that kind of stuff, uh, really really touched me and made me smile. The kind of like wry humor between close friends that gets demonstrated that you're talking about uh, made me like laugh. The uh, the the weird like. Uh, jokes like like i said the joke at the beginning where where Kawhi says he's going to the baseball game and refuses to go to the thing and then the gag the like visual gag of showing the baseball game and then showing that he is not even remotely able to watch it because he acquiesced to his friends <laughs> um i just love all that but moreover just ozu's filmmaking style watching this kind of blew my mind because i've never seen anything visually like this and I expected it to be because what I remember of Tokyo story just being this kind of like boring static camera and, and it is, it doesn't move and it, it is static, but like on a technical level, there is so much crazy stuff going on that I was blown away. And like, this is the biggest surprise to me out of all the films we've done. Uh, I think just because of that, which it, that kind of stuff isn't, I didn't used to pay attention to that very much in movies and mm. I've been doing it a lot more now. And so just seeing something that is like completely different is like seeing a, a like discovering a new language or something that yeah. works completely differently. It's just very different. And it may, really makes me want to watch more of his stuff to see if it's just like, if he's just using a lot of the same kind of stuff over and over again, and that's just how he works or if he's got, kind of other tricks in his sleeve regarding that 
the the way he likes to shoot things. But uh, I think from from here, if I'm exploring more of Ozu's work, I'm going to intentionally search out some of the stuff that's like more lighthearted, which mm. it, he does have some. Uh, I mean, uh, I think uh, Good Morning is his only like straight up. This is just pure comedy. But uh, but I really want to see a lot of his other stuff and see some of his silent era work, because apparently he's been doing like his it very idiosyncratic style has been there since the beginning. Hmm. So I would love to, to go back to look at something from like the 1930s. That was just completely rejecting the way everybody else was making films on the planet. That's um, awesome. So yeah, this, I, I'm really excited about this. Uh, so did anybody have any specific parts they wanted to harken back to, or we kind of like covered that pretty well. Um, I really liked the scene where they have their reunion with the Gord. And uh, I really do love when uh, it, there's a really great rule of threes moment where they talk about their old teachers, but they only refer to them as nicknames. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, I, know, I thought that was really cute. I could have watched that scene uh, for a little while longer. <laughs> yeah, that's like I said, that's that's the kind of like, even though we don't know these characters, there there is a very strong sense of familiarity just because they all the, the way they all get along with each other yeah um, yeah do you remember the other nicknames um god i wrote them I down think... but then i deleted my notes okay. for some reason oh <laughs> they were funny though because they're they're descriptive yeah yeah um god. what were they i don't remember either but i remember i i would laugh every time they'd call him the gourd like even yeah. though it was like well established i'd just be like the gourd. <laughs> I also, I also thought in that scene that it was interesting that he, he's like, "What is this seal?" And they're like, "No, sea eel." Oh, and yeah. um, and I wonder uh, how accurate of a translation that is, or if that's just um localization. Yeah, that might be. Yeah, I want to know what the actual Japanese pun is. But I, li- so I, I did, assume it's a similar joke. Yeah, I did really like the like kind of reverence that they give him after he leaves, being kind of like, man. Even though he didn't know it, he knew how to write it. It like he'd never heard of that word before, but he could figure out the kanji. They're like, yeah, he's a smart guy, art teacher, you know. Um, yeah, it it made me wonder like if I ever got together with my friends like that I'm still friends with from my old school days, and we got together with one of our teachers. <laughs> I don't know. That would just be weird. <laughs> yeah, I feel yeah. like this is a fairly common thing I've seen in Japanese stuff is like a class reunion where they get together with a teacher of theirs and that they're an old man at this point and stuff. I've seen that in other stuff. Yeah, I how me common too. A practice that is. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. I've I've got a, one of my favorite uh, English teachers from high school friended me a while ago on on facebook and is very active on there and i feel like if i wanted to we could hang out Mm -hmm. yeah it'd be super weird (laughs) yeah i'm like that with college professors i have a couple uh college teachers that i remember fondly and that i really liked and that i'm also friends with on facebook so Mm. i i think it's i don't know i think it's different when you're older or maybe in japan middle school is just that age where everybody really comes up Mm. As opposed to mm. here in America, where middle school is easily the most awkward part of your life. <laughs> the worst. Yeah. Um, um, Joey? Oh, I, I, my favorite scene that I wanted to talk a, a little bit more about is that scene in the bar with, um, with Sakamoto, the the man that yeah. was uh, his like uh, war buddy or whatever. Well, in his from his time at war, 
and man, I just I just really loved that scene. That was my favorite part. It's it's like silly and heartwarming, and you know maybe just that it does have the most like movement and action <laughs> of anything. <laughs> but like what really works about that scene for me, uh, besides the obvious like silly and fun stuff, is that there's like a bittersweetness to it. There's this kind of like underlying sadness that it's built upon uh, by them talking about losing the war and um, and you know and then that's like kind of made more complex by them agreeing that maybe it's better that way and we you know now that they're kind of accustomed to westernization and stuff so there's a lot of layers to it that I really felt but it was also just fun seeing them uh, dance around and salute and stuff and uh, yeah I found Sakamoto's actor to be very charismatic. Yeah, he's great. Um, my favorite scene is probably when Michiko goes to to Koichi and Akiko's apartment, and they're all just like joking around about what a bad mood Koichi is in. Just like the it's it's a funny, cute scene, and I really love Akiko and both of them just kind of teasing him mm. is while he's like super upset about it is very cute. Um, for our, uh, for our, shall we dance segment? I was completely stumped trying to figure out, uh, cause I was trying to think of like period appropriate actors. If this was uh, a, a remade as a Western movie. Oh, period um, appropriate. Yeah. I so, was, I, you know what I kind of just came down to is like, it was kind of a cop out, but like, this just seems like impossible for it to be made anywhere other than Japan. Like, cause like, I don't know. I just kind of feel like if you chop out all the like Japanese aspects to it, all you get is maybe a story about a veteran father who's worrying about his daughter who's considering marriage. And there's really not much to that, you know? I don't yeah. know. That sounds like a lot of golden age Hollywood to me. I feel like <laughs> it would probably be made like 10 years earlier if it was a Hollywood movie. Mm. Uh, for to have the similar attitudes uh, towards like marrying off a daughter, because mm -hmm. by the '60s, I feel like it was starting to be like you were getting into to women's liberation stuff. Yeah, I yeah. guess that was my problem. Is I was thinking about it being made today. But yeah, if, if I could definitely see like a, a widower trying like trying to marry off mm -hmm. his his strong-willed daughter. Yeah, when you put it like that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> as a Hollywood movie, which uh, interesting to note, I didn't realize this until doing research for the movie that um, Tokyo story was actually heavily based on a Western movie. Huh. Uh, it's not a, it's not a one-to-one -one remake, but it is uh, it more or less is an adaptation of that film. Hmm. Interesting. Um, so that's interesting. Yeah. You know, I've, uh, you know, I spent a decent amount of time with this episode dunking on Tokyo story, but like, uh, I am really <laughs> curious about um, uh, Yoji Yamada, the Torasan director, uh, remade mm -hmm. it in 2013 uh, called Tokyo Family, and I'm very curious what that. Oh, is. weird. <laughs> yeah, I was yeah. like now now thinking about what Ozu films are and like how much of that is his visual stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what is that movie? Yeah, exactly. Um. Oh, so. When I was watching this, uh, the first thing I thought of actually was um, Hariyama could be played by Rick, um, John Slattery, like super easily. Yeah, uh, he's he's definitely got that kind of kind of look and the just kind of blank expression uh -huh. to him. Yeah, he could definitely like 
those mannerisms, he'd, he'd, he would definitely nail them. And I feel like if they did remake this, it would be like a very light remake. Like it would be inspired by the story, but I could see it as like a weird indie film uh, focusing on just him and loneliness and uh, like the the marrying off the daughter plot would would be a uh, I guess it would be just a part of the movie and it would mostly focus on uh, introspection and stuff. I don't know. I feel mm. like yeah. if if you remade this movie, you would have to basically make a light remake or uh, just have a film inspired by it because like you say yeah. uh, <laughs> the Japanese culture bit is kind of important uh, in how this movie plays out um, so uh, for the uh, Takashi Shimura award of like standout performance uh, Joey did you have anybody uh, I would like to nominate Ejiro Tono, who played um, <laughs> the the old teacher, the gourd. Yeah, <laughs> uh, he's the first actor that really like stood out to me in the as watching the film as being like, oh man, this guy is great. And I was always happy to see him reappear. And again, I kind of appreciated that mix of humor with him getting super drunk, and then this sort of like drama and melancholy of him coming home to his daughter and stuff. Uh, so I. He he kind of stole uh, several of the scenes for me. Yeah, it's maybe overly comedic, but I really like the way he talks when he's acting drunk. He's just <laughs> yelling people's names. It's pretty realistic, actually. Like, <laughs> yeah, this is how drunk people act. <laughs> he's like just the kind of intonation and the way he like puts a little too much wind into the way he speaks is is just like very good to me. Mm-hmm. Um, Alex. Let's see. Uh, Sakamoto came to mind, Daisuke Kato. Mm-hmm. Uh, just because that scene in the bar is quite memorable. Yeah, definitely. Um, and uh, I don't know. I think he's such a very um, uh, incandescent figure. But, um, uh, man, uh, see, Eiji Otona is a really good one, too. But I was also thinking about uh, Kuniko Miyake, who played uh, Kawhi's wife. Um, yeah, she's in the film so long, but like she's immediately likable and just like yeah. I fun. think it's I think it's also because she's very uh, she's weirdly independent compared comparatively. You know, uh, I think he asks her to make the bed, and she's like, "Make it yourself." <laughs> I don't know. Like she seems she seemed to me like a very uh, uh, she seemed like a character to me. <laughs> yeah, you know, I've, she was very memorable. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's 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 a toss up between those three, and I guess if I had to, if you strong armed me into picking one of them, ah oh man, it's probably the gourd. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, I I say this also because when uh, Hiryama goes into the other restaurant with Sakamoto, uh, you see the sadness on his face when he mm-hmm. leaves, and you really feel that. Um, it's almost a gut punch because. Mm-hmm. I, I'm like, oh well, I guess we're gonna go see, you know, them in this restaurant now. But I kind of wanted to spend more time with them. <laughs> yeah, it just feels so rude. Yeah, a bit. Uh, um, but it, it's 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 just it that was super sad <laughs> to mm-hmm. me, and it struck mm-hmm. a chord. How about you, Scott? Um, uh, my standout was uh, Mariko Okada as Akiko. Yeah, she's great. Uh, just like. 
her personality is so good. After watching this, I went back and watched the like the 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 spaghetti scene from Tampopo, <laughs> just to like see her in that again. It's, it's really funny. Uh, <laughs> I, I do want to watch the rest of Samurai Trilogy because she's in all of those as Akimi. Yeah, yeah, and I want to see more of her performance in that but yeah she is she is just so funny and likable and i like her like when she's sitting there like angrily eating grapes and spitting out the the seeds <laughs> there there's so much going on in that scene even though she's just eating um so yeah so she she was my standout and like you said she was the focus of all my favorite scenes um so oh. uh um, anything else well uh you know um, I was actually thinking of Akiko and not Kawaii's wife. So, oh, okay, um, yeah, I am an idiot. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I was. I thought that might be who you were talking about, but like, yes. uh, I I do like Kawaii's wife because she's there. She really is. When she first greets him, she just has like a kind face, and much like the other women in that movie, doesn't really like. She's a little more subservient, I guess, than the others, but she's still like. Yeah, she blows their cover on the joke when they're when it gets too mean to hear Yama, and she's just like, "Stop messing with that man." <laughs> Sorry, I was trying to look up. I I did not write her down in my cast, so I don't remember what else she was. There were a lot of great actors uh, in this one. What else she's in? <laughs> yeah, this this cast. Even though, uh, like I said in the commentary, they talked about how this was a kind of lean time for, um, for the studio, like the amount of star power they had just sitting around or the like quality of these of these folks um yeah her actress is uh kuniko miyake and she is just a regular in almost all of uh all of uh, ozu's other movies hmm. um and yeah a lot of these a lot of these uh actors are uh, are regulars they just kind of get shuffled around in roles there's a couple other movies where people he he Apparently likes using the surname uh, 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 Hiryame, hmm. and so it pops up in a bunch of the other movies. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, uh, Horie is the the lead actor in one of the, in the movie previous to this, and they talk about in the commentary how he the, his character in that movie is a widower and Ozu kind of rewarded him with an attractive young wife in this movie. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's good. Um, I like some continuity between movies, sort of meta continuity. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So is uh, anything else about this movie that you, any last things? Mm -mm. All right. Uh, Alex, what are we doing next month? Oh man. Next month is one that I've wanted to do for a while. Uh, we're going to be watching Kamikaze Girls, um, uh, directed by Tetsuya Nakashima, and um, it's a it's a movie that's bas- that basically explores the friendship of a uh, a Lolita and a Yankee. Yeah, huh, cool. It's like yeah, I've... it's like the Odd Couple, but <laughs> I don't know. I've never actually watched it. <laughs> I've heard this um, movie recommended. Uh, it might even be on our list. I'd have to double check, but um, yeah, I I'm I'm. Uh curious to see it i've heard it recommended several times yeah this is something i've seen the title floating around a bunch and in various circles where it's adjacent to stuff i like but i actually know nothing about the film Mm -hmm. so yeah um i remember when the trailer came out i was very uh 
I was very excited for it, and I never ended up watching it. So Oh, so you haven't seen it either. Now's your chance. Oh, cool. Yep. Nice. Awesome. Um, well, uh, uh, you can find me on the internet at uh, uh, Vriska Chat on Twitter, V-R-I-S-K-A-C-H-A-T. Um, if you have any Ozu-related stuff and you know more than me, uh, hit me up because I'm very interested in just like watching interviews or reading more about his, his work. Because like I said, I was blown away by this. So please give me recommendations. Um, Alex, where can people find you? Uh, find me on the internet. Uh, most, mostly Twitter. I kind of live on there at dude exclamation all one word. Uh, I have an Instagram account also, but, uh, you're not going to find, uh, much Japanese, uh, related stuff on there. Um, and, uh, you can listen to me on the one piece podcast every week. With those guys, uh, we have a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, sometimes I'm on there too. <laughs> yep. Where else can people find you, Jim? Um, I hey guys, I'm also on the internet. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, Twitter at Joey Weiser or JoeyWeiser.tumblr.com uh, for news about my comics work. Um, I'm a cartoonist, the author of the five volume Merman uh, graphic novel series and the upcoming Ghost Hog uh, graphic novel coming out next year. Um, and, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, please, uh, say hi on Twitter or wherever. Um, and as for, uh, Toho Yaro, uh, we're on Twitter at Toho Yaro and we have a Facebook page that you can like as well. Um, we like to talk about upcoming episodes and plug our current episodes and, um, tweet and retweet any Japanese movie news or tidbits or things that we can find on, on Twitter. So, uh, look for us there. You can email us, uh, tohoyaro at gmail.com, and uh, please rate and review and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get podcasts. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening to this. We hope you've enjoyed it and uh, are as enthusiastic about the rest of Ozu's work as I am. And uh, join us next month for Kamikaze Girls. Yeah. Yeah.